Follow Me is the third installment in our Life of Christ series. In this series, we are looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus and have our lives reflect His glory. We will be looking at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you are interested in knowing more about Jesus, Christianity, or our community of faith at Christ Church at Grove Farm, I encourage you to reach out to us on our website, ccgf.org. Our pastors and staff would love to connect with you and assist you in your walk with Christ. Here's the message from this week. Grace and peace to you. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you here this morning. If we have not met yet, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you after the service in the lobby. I look forward to doing that if we have not connected personally. Well, this week we're in the fourth week of a series entitled The Life of Christ, Follow Me. And over the past three weeks, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount that's found in Scripture. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew 5. Or if you have an app on your phone, I would encourage you to check it out. It's good to look at the Word of God while we're teaching that as well. I'd also encourage you, you should have received a Connect card, as Jeremiah mentioned when you came in the door. And there's a place in the back for notes where you can write down thoughts. I typically do this every time one of our pastors is preaching, is just write things down. I, hope, I, hope, I, uh, I find that it helps me stay engaged in the message, and it's also good just to reflect on, to go back to those notes, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, and see what God has brought to my mind. I encourage you to do that today. Well, let me give you a little context for what we're looking at in the Scripture this morning. We started this series three weeks ago by looking at the Beatitudes, the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. And then in our second week, Pastor Craig uh, took us, continued to take us through this passage, and we looked at what it means to be salt and light in our world. If you remember, Jesus taught, taught us that we should be agents of change in our culture, that we should be the ones that preserve what is true and what is good in our world. Last week, Pastor Craig took us through verses 17 through 20, and where we looked at Jesus' teaching on the authority of Scripture how Scripture, the Bible, is an anchor for our lives. It's a place where we can go to for truth, for comfort, and to gain our bearings when we're confused in life. Well, now Jesus starts to get very practical in Matthew chapter 5. He begins to take the Old Testament law that his hearers would have understood, and he begins to apply it to their lives. After defending the authority of the Scripture— He shows us how this is to be lived out in our daily lives and how it applies to our hearts. Now, there's an important thing to to take note here. Theologians say that when it comes to the law of the Old Testament, there were two sides to this law. There is the civil law and the moral law. The civil law would be understood as their government, You know, they had a government that governed the people of Israel, the Israelites and the Jews during this time. It was found in Exodus chapter 20. It started with the Ten Commandments and continued throughout. And for a period of time, they had a a mirrored civil law and moral law. Moral law is more of our personal ethics. It's how we should live out our lives. Here in our country, those are not directly mirrored. Our moral law is actually a higher standard than the civil law that we live under. God calls us to a higher standard of ethics in our lives. But here's the point. Friends, we can have a perfect law. We can have a perfect government. We can have the best leaders. But if it doesn't impact our heart, we miss the point. We miss the point. 
You know, sometimes in our frustration, we forget this. We see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is taking their civil law, which maybe was the most perfect law in all of humankind. It was given to them by God. Moses penned it down. It was literally the words of God. Jesus begins to take this law and he begins to challenge the hearts of those who are listening to them. And he applies it to their lives. In verse 21, for example, he says, You've heard that it was said by a people long ago, Thou shalt not murder. He's referring to the civil law that was given to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. But then he applies it to their hearts and to their lives. And he says that if any one of us is angry with another, if we hold on to bitterness, if we say things in anger, if we hold grudges, well, then we miss the point. The personal ethic that Jesus calls us to is greater than just the civil law. In verse 27, Jesus continues, and he begins to speak about the civil law of adultery and says that if we look at one another, though, with lust in our eyes, well, then we commit adultery in our hearts. In verse 31, Jesus speaks about our word and the vows that we take and that we give to one another, whether in marriage or in life or in the marketplace. And he says that we should be people who keep our word that speak, that do what we say, and speak with integrity. You know, it begins to get really clear that as Jesus applies the law to our lives, that he's much more interested in heart transformation than behavior modification. He takes this civil law and he penetrates into our hearts and he wants to change us at our deepest place because we know when our heart is changed, All is changed. Well, this brings us to the challenging text that we are looking at here this morning. Jeremiah just read this a few minutes ago, but I think it's worthy of looking at again. Jesus says these words, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here this morning like to get even? There's a part of you that likes to get even. This is one of those ones, you don't have to raise your hand all the way up, you can kind of just do this. I kind of like... Let me ask you another question. How many of you are married to a person that likes to get even? Definitely do not raise your hand. Do not take the bait on that. It is not worth it at all. You know, there's a part of every one of us, I think, that longs to get even, right? You know, when someone wrongs you in a big way or or small way, you take note. Maybe you keep a scorecard in your mind. You don't forget. When someone passes you on the highway, driving a ridiculous amount of speed, you feel satisfied when you kind of catch up with them and eventually pass them up. Or even more, when they're pulled over on the side of the road, you're like, yes, there's justice down the road that's keeping score. Or if a friend beats you in ping pong in the basement, it bothers you until you can return the favor. You just keep playing until you can eventually beat them in even the score. Friends, there's a desire in every one of us to get even, to settle the score, 
And Jesus this morning speaks to this desire. He quotes another Old Testament law. It can be found in three areas. If you are writing these down, it's always fun to go back and look at these because you understand what Jesus is teaching in light of the whole scripture. It's found in Exodus 21, verses 23 and 25. Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20. And Deuteronomy 19 and 21. This law is one of the oldest laws in human history. For those of you who are lawyers here this morning, you might know this law as the lex talionis. Or most more, more commonly known is the law of retribution. You know, I learned something about this law here today. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was not given as a right, but rather it was given as a restriction for retaliation. You see, you know, there are times in my life when I walk through my house and my youngest daughter, she's kind of feisty. She likes to fight. So every once in a while I'll come and I'll poke her. I'll hit the poker right here. And I'll give her a little poke right in the side. And she'll look at me and she'll go, Dad, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I have to retaliate. I have to get you back. Right? That's not the heart of this law. The point of this law was actually to curb retaliation. It was to keep us from going too far when someone harms us. When I was in college, I lived in a dormitory. And uh, men or boys in a college dormitory were known, in my particular floor, were known for the pranks that we would play on each other. I mean, it was pretty much one prank after another each day that we lived there. But I declared a law that if anyone kind of did a, a prank on me, that I would return the favor to them what I called tenfold. So if you do something to me, it's going to be much, much worse than when I do it to you. For example, if someone put a Dixie cup of water on the top of my door and I opened it up and it fell on my head, I would lay a trash can full of water on their door and knock on it and let it flood out their dorms. Now, I know this is wrong and evil. It's the whole point of this law, that we won't retaliate in ways that are greater than we are harmed. But friends, on a serious note, when a real hurt has taken place, it can start a cycle of retaliation that never stops and has no winners. One commentator that I read this week wrote about the never-ending cycle of violence in the Middle East throughout generations. He said it can simply be explained by the human desire to keep score and get even. The desire for retribution, however, doesn't have to be physical. We often see this closer to home too, sometimes in our marriages, when couples keep score of hurts, disappointments, and make sure to hurt each other in order to win a game that causes nothing but pain for all of those who are involved. Friends, Jesus says that this should not be for us. This should not be. And there's a way to break this cycle and he gives us four very important illustrations on how we can do this. The first thing that Jesus says is that when someone wrongs you, do not resist and turn the other cheek. Now, in Jesus' time, uh, a slap was a very serious thing. If someone were to slap another person, it was more than just a physical assault. It was actually an assault on their honor as a human being. It was extremely demeaning. And most people during Jesus' time were right-handed, like us here today. And so for you to imagine, if someone were to come up to someone and 
slapped them across the face. Their, their face would turn in that direction where they got hit. And what Jesus is actually saying is if this happens to you, turn your cheek the other way so that they can slap you again with the back of their hand. Now, this had some special meaning for those who are listening to Jesus, because during Jesus's time, it was incredibly dishonoring to slap someone, but it was doubly disrespectful to slap someone with the back of your hand when you come back. You know, in moments like this, it is human to want to get even, to defend yourselves, but Jesus knows that this will lead to a cycle that will never end. When someone dishonors you or disrespects you, Jesus says, don't react. Don't react. Turn the other cheek. The second illustration that Jesus gives us is to give your coat as well as your shirt. This is interesting this week. If someone had a debt that was owed to another individual, one of the things I learned that a debtor could do was actually ask for the tunic of that individual. A tunic was a shirt that they would, be, they would wear, and most individuals had more than one tunic. And so if someone, if you owe someone a debt and they said, hey, uh, you have not repaid that for a period of time, so I'm going to go ahead and take your shirt— it would actually be kind of embarrassing for that individual. You could imagine they would have to walk back home without a shirt and people would know that they have a debt that they need to pay. This was done often to kind of prioritize that debt and the one who's, who owes that money for a repayment. But during Jesus's time, individuals also wore a cloak over their tunic. It's interpreted as coat in the scriptures that we're looking at here today. And there were actually Old Testament laws that it was unlawful to take someone's cloak. See, a cloak was more valuable than a tunic. A man usually only had one cloak. It also doubled as a sleeping blanket at night. And if you were taking someone's cloak, you were also taking their blankie as well. How would they sleep at night? And most men had only one cloak. What Jesus is saying is that there are times when someone will challenge your comfort. They will try to take your stuff. Don't react. Don't react. The third illustration that Jesus gives us in this moral ethic that he's teaching us, this personal ethic of how to handle conflict in our life is to go the second mile. See, Jews during this time were living in an occupied territory and had been living in this territory, this kind of situation for a long period of time. During the Persian Empire, it was commonplace for couriers, those that were carrying the mail, to grab a civilian and ask them to carry the mail or some packages for a mile at a time. They might also be asked to provide food or housing for a night or care for horses. This practice continued on throughout the Roman Empire. And during this time, a Roman soldier might come up to someone and put the flat side of their spear on the shoulder of a young man and say, hey, it's your turn to carry my armor or my materials for another mile. And they just did it. They had to do it. Now, no one wanted to do this. No one wants to stop their day and their plans to carry someone else's stuff for a mile. But they had to during this time. And Jesus says is that when someone calls us to do something we don't want to do, go even further. 
Don't go just one mile, but go an extra mile. Keep going. You might be aware of the incredible service at Chick-fil-A restaurant. They actually called this service second mile service. If you know someone who's worked there, you maybe have heard of this. It comes directly from this scripture that we're looking at here this morning. I have a friend of mine who's an owner operator of a Chick-fil-A locally. And I asked him a little bit about this second mile service and how they train their employees and where it came from. And he told me this, that it is their goal to exceed expectations in four different areas. I found this interesting. Hospitality, quality, speed, and cleanliness. They do this in many big ways and small ways. You might notice that after you eat a meal, they give you a mint. That's a small way that they're trying to exceed the expectations of their industry. Very few in the fast food business care for you as much as they do, right? My friend's store, though, is located next to a hospital. And one of the ways that they try to live out second mile service is they actually are trained to look for customers that are emotional, that might be coming into their restaurant or after visiting the hospital, and they ask about them. And if they see someone who has a family member in their hospital, they will actually get a bag of food and give it to them to bring it back to that individual that is recovering from illness or sickness. They go the extra mile, right? I mean, if you want to test out or want to see what it looks like to live out second mile, I would encourage you, this is a little bit of homework, just go to Chick-fil-A this week and try to be difficult. Just try to be difficult. Eat like half of your chicken sandwich and walk up to the counter and go, I didn't like this. It wasn't that good. And watch what they do. It's amazing. They will, I bet you they will give you another chicken sandwich. And then they're going to say two words that seem just way out of sorts. They're going to say what? My pleasure. Their pleasure to give you a second sandwich. If you really want to make this point, I would say do it again. And then again. Add about five or six sandwiches, I think you would begin to realize that you are the jerk because this young little teenager is going to continue to give you more and more chicken sandwiches, saying it, my pleasure. Right? Friends, I think this is the point. I think this is the point. What Jesus is trying to teach us is that if we respond to evil like this in our culture, there eventually is a point where people give up and go, you know what? They're just, they're just good. There's something there that's different. They won't react with evil. They keep saying my pleasure and they keep being generous. They keep going the second mile when I try to take advantage of them. They give me their coat as well as their shirt. They don't resist and they turn the other cheek. You know, if you were to do this at the restaurant this week, you would realize that maybe I'm the problem, not them, after a period of time. And I think that's Jesus' point. The fourth illustration that Jesus gives us to teach us how to handle this in our lives is simply to be generous. It was customary to give in Jewish culture. And there's a reason why Jesus often met individuals who were begging outside the temple and the synagogues. People knew if they were in need, that's where they could go to receive. But there are times in life when we give to others and it feels like we're being taken advantage of, doesn't it? Jesus would say, even in those moments, give. Give. Just give. I was serving in another church a number of years ago, and um, I came in contact with this gentleman who was in my church who just had the, 
he had a gift of generosity. He was a real strong personality, but he would always give in amazingly strong ways as well. I would often find out that he had given to a family who was in need in our church if someone lost a job. I remember one time finding out that he actually paid for two kids' entire Christmas. He found a way to give, and I found out later he would do this in secret, very privately. It was very, people would come to me, though, and thank me and thank him for what he did. One time, we found out about a need in our community, and there was a gentleman who was in need, and we were providing for that need. And he was telling me a story, and I had known him for a period of time. And, and after a period of time, the stories weren't lining up. There was just some things that just didn't seem to make sense, and it was bothering me. And I looked at this older gentleman who had this gift of generosity, and I said to him, I think we're getting taken advantage of. I actually verbalized that to me. And I'll never forget what he said. He just looked at me and said, Mike, that's not the point. That's not the point. God calls us to be people who are generous. When we see needs around us, even when it feels at times like we're being taken advantage of, to have the heart to give. When someone wrongs you, Jesus challenges us to not resist and to turn the other cheek, to give our coat as well as our shirt, to go the second mile and to be generous. But Jesus then goes even further, and he tells us to be a people that love those who wronged you. Love them. He says it this way, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the, ev- on the evil and the good and sends the rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, some have said that the most distinguishing mark of someone who follows Jesus Christ is their ability to love their enemies. This is the thing that stands out more than anything else throughout history, that followers of Jesus have the ability to love those who are against them. Stephen Alford tells a story of a man named Peter Miller. He was a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. He lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, One of his dearest friends during this time was General George Washington. Now, in this town, there was one individual, his name was Michael Whitman, though, who was a spiteful troublemaker, apparently. And he made it his goal to oppose Miller and humiliate him in every way that he possibly could. Well, one day, this caught up to Whitman, and he was arrested for treason and eventually sentenced to death. When he heard the news of this, though, Miller set out to Philadelphia to plead for the life of his enemy. After walking 70 miles on foot, Miller petitioned his friend, General Washington, to spare Whitman's life. But Washington said, no, Peter, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. I can't do that favor for you. Miller said, my friend... He's not my friend. In fact, he's my most bitter enemy. 
To which Washington said, what? You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? Well, that puts this matter into different light. I will grant you your pardon. And he did. That day, Miller and Whitman walked back the 70 miles back to their home together. And it said, as as they started walking, they were enemies. But when they finished that walk, they became friends. Friends, Jesus challenges our hearts when it comes to those who oppose us. Whether at school, at work, on the ball field, in the office, or at home. He instructs us to love our enemies. To position our hearts in such a way that we see others the way that God sees them. And to pray for those who mean harm to us. Pray that God will bless them, God will teach them, and God will protect them. One author I read this week said this, loving our enemies is not as much an act of the heart, but rather it's an act of the will, something that we choose to do. So how do we do this? I mean, this is an incredibly challenging teaching from Jesus. How do we live this practically out in our lives? I have a, a couple of suggestions, and the first suggestion I have is this. Yield to Jesus. Yield to Jesus. These teachings are not coming from me, but rather they are the words of Jesus Christ. Friends, I have found it impossible to live this out without the power of God. One must first yield their life to Jesus before they can ever yield their right to revenge and learn to love someone who means harm to them. And if you are here today, and the thought of loving your enemy seems completely impossible or foreign, will you ask yourself this question, have I truly yielded my life to Jesus Christ? Have I yielded my life to him? Have I decided to follow him? Or has my relationship looked backwards, where I've asked Jesus to follow me and my agenda for my life? It is only when we make Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives that we can begin to truly understand and live out what we have learned here today. It takes a new heart. And if this is you today, if you've never yielded your life to Jesus, I will give you that opportunity today to accept the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ and to learn to be a conduit of that forgiveness in every relationship that you have. Yield to Jesus. The second suggestion that I have is simply to remember, friends, that we all need grace. Every one of us needs grace. We need to give grace and we need to ask for grace as well. Very clearly today, we've seen that we need to be a people that give grace to others when they wrong us. But I would also say that we need to be humble enough to ask for it when we fall short. Last time I checked, there is only one perfect person that has ever walked this earth. His name is Jesus Christ. And the rest of us, no matter how talented and wonderful we are, we are imperfect. As was mentioned earlier, even the pastors are imperfect as well. All of us need grace in our lives. 
Some of the most powerful words in the English language are this. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? If you have hurt another, will you humble yourself enough to ask for grace? We all need grace. The third challenge I have for you is to change your presumption. Change your presumption. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard, by the way, if you want to read an incredible book and you're taking notes, write that title down, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. It is a classic on the Sermon Amount. He talks about what he calls the great inversion between the human order and the kingdom order of our heart. How Jesus is that we should, Jesus' teaching should cause a reversal in our presumptions on how we will respond to certain things. And one way that Dallas Willard says that we should live this out is that we should presume that we will return good for evil in our lives. That that decision should be made in advance so that when you are surprised by evil, you will know what to do. Your presumption will be to return it with good, not to punch back until this becomes second nature in our lives. Change your presumption on how you will live your life when you face evil in your life. Friends, following Jesus can be a challenging thing, can it? In Luke 18, a wealthy ruler came to Jesus and asked him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after a short discussion on the law and keeping the rules, this rich ruler says, I've done all of those since I was a boy. Apparently, he was a very good boy. He kept all the rules. So Jesus looked at him and said, you still lack one thing. Why don't you sell it all? Give it to the poor. And then follow me. Follow me. You know, for years, I looked at this story in Scripture, and it bothered me. I felt like it was unfair. I mean, this man had so much to give up to follow Jesus. For others, it would be easier to give up what they had because they had less. But then one day, while I was journaling on this text, God gave me a thought. What could he have gained? Think about what he could have gained. Yes, he would have had to give up something, but what would he have gained if he would have said yes and followed Jesus? He would have walked with God. He would have seen Jesus' miracles firsthand. We may even know his name today. He might have been the 13th disciple. Who knows? Jesus was saying, follow me and walk with me closely. Friends, every step in following Jesus has a perceived expense. It does. But I invite you today to consider what is to be gained. Consider what is to be gained. If you are holding on to a hurt, or to a disappointment, or just the desire to get even. Will you let it go today? I know that it seems like you are giving something up to do this. But I promise you, there is something much more, something much greater to be gained. We've been asking a question at the end of our messages every week during this series for us to ponder. It's a question of kind of contemplation. A question maybe to think about throughout the week. The question that I have for you is simply this. Will you yield to Christ?
Maybe in your life, yielding to Christ is going the second mile with a difficult client or with a family member. Maybe for you, yielding to Christ is turning the other cheek. Whatever the circumstances are of your life is, will you yield to Christ? Will you wake up every day this week and say to Jesus, today, Jesus, I yield to you. I follow you. And I choose to follow you again. Today is the day that you want to yield to Jesus for the very first time. I will give you an opportunity to do so here this morning. And of course, if you are wrestling with something in this area in your life, during our next worship song, we will have prayer counselors in the back that would be happy to pray with whatever your need is here today. Let us pray. God, we are grateful for this challenging teaching that you give us here this morning. God, thank you the way that you call us to live our lives. God, we thank you for the freedom and the joy that is to be gained when we choose to give up our right to retribution or our right to get even. God, I pray that you would teach us to yield our life to you in this way. God, teach us to be a people that don't react, that don't retaliate, that bring peace into hostile situations and that stop the cycles of pain and destruction in our lives. If you are here today and today you want to yield your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to say this prayer to him this morning. Jesus, today I yield and I give my life to you. God, today I choose to follow you. I've been maybe asking you to follow me or doing life on my own. But today, God, I posture my heart to walk in your steps, to follow you. Jesus, I ask that you would enter my heart, that you would forgive me for the things that I've done, the things that I've left undone. God, teach me be a person that gives grace and freedom and forgiveness to those that are around me as well. Lord, we are grateful for your teachings, for the challenging words that you've given us here today. I pray, Lord, that you give us the strength and the wisdom to live them out as we follow you. Amen. Amen.